Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Dr. Parks. Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. DM Wen. Hi, DM. Hello, Dr. Parks. And second year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Edgar Ortega. Hi, Edgar. Hi, Dr. Parks. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about police aggression and some of the, what the research shows um, and how we're kind of um, conceptualizing it. It's very important nowadays, of course, because of all civil unrest. Um, much of the unrest has to do with uh, the killing of uh, unarmed black folks, uh, but not just in the black community, also um, just people with mental illnesses. I feel, feel like sometimes people don't recognize that people with an, a mental illness or an undiagnosed mental illness are much more likely to be killed by the police than um, the general population. So how are we going to begin this? Does anyone, <laughs> first of all, does anyone <laughs> want such a heavy topic. It's a heavy topic, it's but that's yeah. why we do it's it, DM. Uh, you know, because because you know, it's people. It's, it's on everyone's mind. It's on my mind, you know, for sure. Trying to ex- understand what's going on with um, the cops. Is it is it is it the bad cop or is it the environment that? Right. Now, I, I, I'll just right. kind of throw that out first. Do you feel it's it's a few bad apples, or do you feel like it's there's something about the culture in a police that leads to? bringing this out more often and then it happens i think it's funny that you said bad apples i don't know if you read the show notes beforehand and saw bad apples (laughs) of course i did (laughs) i looked at a um a research report put out by the national institute of justice back in 1994 so this is pretty old um but it was written up for the u.s department of justice by a psychologist ellen m script actually phd sorry um but he was talking to he pulled basically a bunch of police psychologists um back in 1994 and talked to them about what kind of professional services they provided to the police departments various police departments around the country <laughs> excuse me and how these services <laughs> sorry and how these services were used to control uh the use of force and then also this is the interesting part to me um he asked them to characterize officers who abuse force um and suggest strategies on how to combat that so the um parts that i selected from this in the summary of this report were the summary of profiles of officers who did abuse their for their who use excessive force. Um, so I'm just gonna list some of these profiles off. Uh, one officers with I think we all kind of guess this, but personality disorders such as um, antisocial, narcissistic, um, abusive tendencies. This is kind of old, 1994, so it's got, you know, it's not the official personality disorders, but um, also empath- lack of empathy for others. Another profile was officers with previous job-related experiences, not necessarily uh, unjustifiable use of force, but um, potentially, like, an example would be 
justifiable police shootings. Another profile was officers who that they that they had been involved in another police shooting, maybe yes. not unjustifiable, yes. but that led to but a higher sort of, yeah. incident. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another one was officers who experienced early career stage problems having to do with their impressionability, impulsiveness, low tolerance for frustration, general need for strong supervision. Another one was officers who had a dominant, heavy-handed patrol style, particularly sensitive to challenge and provocation. Another one was officers who had personal problems such as separation, divorce, perceived loss of status that caused extreme anxiety and destabilized job functioning. So one of the um, one of the quotes that I pulled from this report is the following the findings suggest that conventional wisdom characterizing serious offenders as only a few bad apples does not appear to describe most officers who become involved in excessive force rather excessive force is enacted within a broader context and then later on the report says these descriptive data support the notion that excessive force is a system-wide problem and in some instances may reflect a dysfunctional system I agree with that. I yeah, feel there's so definitely a culture that brings that out. 100%. Okay. Um, another interesting thing that this report mentions is that these findings underscore how behavior can be reinforced or sanctioned by tradition-clad mores and values. And the strategies that these psychologists came up with were the following. Um, increased assessment and selection on the front end of the system. This would be um, like you know, going through the application process and selecting the best of the bunch, right? Um, And then also building safeguards throughout the systems, like monitoring, training, supervision. Um, Yeah, can I I, I jump in here at this mm -hmm, point? mm -hmm. That I did look a little bit at the research of what actually reduces uh, police aggression and and killings. Okay, great, yeah. And yeah, they... The, the one of the top ones, it, with this resulted in a 25% reduction, was requiring comprehensive reporting of all these incidents. So if you're requiring that, that you have to have all this comprehensive reporting, mm-hmm. that in itself, knowing that that's going to happen, that reduced right. this violence. And also requiring, again, these are requirements, not advisements, requiring officers to exhaust all other means before shooting. That, again reduced it another 25%. 22% reduction came from banning chokeholds. Mm-hmm. Just banning them, chokeholds, any kind of strangleholds, that, those kinds of things. And then just having a, that was 22%, having just a use of force continuum, like you have to go through these, you know, low gradations of force escalating and, you know, until the, the situation is managed. Well, that is 19%. So a lot of these are just hard and fast measures of, you know, they really didn't, they haven't found yet, you know, things like um, reducing like educational programs to reduce like racism and things like that, or just education on, um, um, you know, different interventions. These, the actual requirements of just procedures of just, just policing procedures is, is one of the most important things you can do. Mm-hmm. I, yes. I would and say I think... that, oh, sorry, go ahead, Edgar. Edgar. 
I just wanted to follow up with uh, Dr. Parks, what you were saying. I'm not sure how standardized is the training that every single, you know, police force has in the country, but I found, like, whether it's a training or what you were talking, Dr. Parks, about accountability of the officers, I found very, some discrepancies in, for example, in North Carolina, you can be a police officer with 16 weeks of training, where in California, you can be a police officer with, this is a kind of like a range of 24 to 48 weeks. So there's a significant difference of the training and perhaps even the protocols and, you know, like what you were saying, accountability reports and things like that that you need to do, even when you're actually on duty. So I, so I less of a training that, probably, uh, phase of training, there's, there's, I mean, there's less chance to pick and to identify folks that are going to have problems, maybe. That's another I, I, I assume so. Like you have less time to screen, train, you know, evaluate and then graduate the officers before you, they go on duty, which I believe it could be, you know, substantially different for different forces. And and just to retake your original question, I think it and this is a delicate situation, of course, but in general, I think that a lot of those new things with police brutality stem back from the history of this country, you know, uh, from the injustices that the African-American population has gone through. You know, we treat them as slaves, property, sometimes even worse than animals with no rights. And then, of course, with, with uh, civil movements, that got better. But at the end of the day, it's somehow in, still ingrained in the systems and biases of people. And when you have power and authority, like police officers do online, there has to be some sort of, like, you know, outcome related to that as well. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I, you know, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say that these personality factors aren't impactful on on a police aggression because they are. I mean, and and what you're kind of talking about? Are you talking about, about the profiles that yeah, I was the talking profi- about? Yeah, because they have found says have found that um, officers that are more racist, more have more implicit racial bias do have more justification and rationalization for um, doing violence. Um, I'll just tell you one one study where they found that, okay, so that now- What do you mean justification and rationalization? Okay, so- False rationalization? Uh, yeah, yeah uh, that, that justifying their violence. Mm-hmm. So that they've come one, up with these things to back their use of violence up. Well, uh, well first, they, first the, um, this, this way they, the way a lot of these studies are is that first they detect the violence or the implicit racial bias um, and then identify folks that are high in that measure. Um, because, you know, if you just ask people, are you a racist? They're going to say, everyone's going to say no, <laughs> right? So you can't do it that way. You have to do it through, uh, um, oh through implicit racism. And there, there's various tests you can do online, actually. And we've talked about this before. Oh my gosh, on I show. tried one actually earlier How, this week. Are you a racist? I tried to. I actually didn't get to the race one, um, but one one went about the way I imagine and the other one didn't. Um, now, I, now, I just want to say something to about going. to our listeners about these tests. Um, basically, they, you, they show you these emotionally charged words very quickly and you have to react and respond. And based on the timing of your responses to these emotionally charged words, you can detect different um, biases in, in respect to different groups. You know what? We should actually define implicit bias itself. So implicit bias, the, this is some definitions I pulled from the web, but their thoughts and feelings triggered extremely quickly for the purpose of guiding fast reactions. Um, we may not even be really 
aware of them in our consciousness, maybe more of the subconscious mechanism to it. Um, but um, PhD Philip Goff or Joff, he's a social psychologist at UCLA. He described this as leading to a, an identity trap. Quote, there are situations that trap us into behaving in ways that are not consistent with our values. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, they've had studies where, um, you, you know, they, they present the, 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 like African-American features, dark skin, the, dark, the darker the skin, you know, full lips, wide noses. When that was identified by, by police officers that had this implicit bias, racial bias, they were more likely to identify them as criminal suspects. Mm -hmm. And they were more likely to engage in racial profiling unconsciously mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in simulated in computer simulations they were more likely to shoot stereotypically looking black suspects than not and this isn't i want to clarify that i we're not saying that this is the only thing going on because there's also explicit prejudice happening happening at the same time but it's, i think it's just interesting to talk about the bias that occurs implicitly yeah, and then there's also an implicit dehumanization bias. So mm. they've primed, again, folks that are high in this, they've primed them by just showing images of apes, just showing them that. And then once that was primed, they were more likely to find that beating black suspects was justified. Wow. So this is just completely out there. This is in the research showing, showing this. Mm. And this is, this is really scary about what, what's happening. What what did you Can get? I, what did the rest? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Edgar. Um, I'm just to follow up with that. If, I'm, I'm sure you guys all came across different statistics on police brutality, specifically against African Americans. So, if you from the findings, there's many, but some of just the highlights is that if you're African American in this country, you're at two and a half more times than your white counterparts of being killed by police, and in 1.5 more times to be unarmed by the time, you know, if you're shoot or, or, or at times, I guess, killed by also by police. Um, in 2019, 25% of police killings were of African-American. And if we compare that in, in, in terms of, you know, population percentages, we only, African-Americans only account for 12 to 13% of the population, right? Versus other uh, races like why I think it's over 60%. So it's clearly unfair and, and unequal. And if we go specific for Minneapolis Police Department using force against African Americans, it's at the seven times more the rate of white people. Um, wow. And this, unfortunately, this kind of parallel with the African Americans also being in lower incomes, lower education and unemployment, which just talks about how we uh, to have uh, those injustices against you know different races and, and different disparities we see that even with the access to me, you know mental health or health care as well so it's, yeah. it's something that it's ingrained all over yeah no, that, those are um, really disturbing statistics if you're just joining us you're listening to let's get psyched on KUCR and we're talking about police aggression what explains it is personality is a few bad apples, or is it something about the system? Is it something about the culture of police training, or just, or just the when you once you're in the group? And I did see studies that you know just hiring um, African American police officers wasn't enough, at least at least until you reach a certain critical mass, because the police culture is so strong 
that um, a lot of African-American police officers that are very outnumbered, they're not going to make that much of a difference um, just by hiring, you know, a few. You, have, you need to you know, hire quite a few for there to be an actual difference. So the, the culture is strong. And, it, and, you know, and really social psychologists would say that that's probably where most of it is coming from. You know, this us versus them mentality kind of thing where it leads to, you know, feeling threats or knowing threats. You know, um, Edgar, I just want to say one thing, and please jump in, anybody, if they want to jump in. But you were talking about a lot of the um, um, the, the, the killing and how it's it's much more likely to happen with African-American folks. Now, I saw a study that when it does happen, whenever there's a high-profile killing, an unarmed Black individual, um, the, call, the reporting of crime goes down dramatically, not only in that area, but then also in surrounding areas. And so, and they did, uh, and the effect lasts for about a year. That and that, um, mm-hmm. according to this one study, about twenty-two thousand two hundred calls um, less than what would have normally been expected from that area. So, okay, so what do you mean folks, calls like nine one one calls? Yeah, nine one one calls for crime. So, uh, if when these things happen, is that people be, being afraid of calling? Yeah, they're police? afraid to call. I, I mean, definitely. Like, I think um, where George Floyd was killed, the owner of who called the police said that he really regret making that call. <laughs> like, he wouldn't have done uh, it again. Like, so when you think, no. and yeah, I, I think. And, and you've probably had clients that have said that also, because I've I've had clients too that um, where you yeah, talk about too. risky, dangerous too. things happening. Now, as a half white person. Half white, half Japanese. Um, one of my thoughts is, huh, like when I hear like thing, people are in danger or there could be a, a dangerous situation, my thought is to call the police. But as soon as I start the conversation, I'm like, oh, it's not, this, you know, I'm, I need to check my kind of cultural bias here because you know a lot of folks don't see the police as something that's something that can be very helpful at times. And so, the, you know, some clients have said, I'm not absolutely not going to call the police if this happens. So then you have to just strategize and work with that client about, well, how are we going to manage this threat if the police are off the table? You know, if you're not going to be calling them. I agree. You know, um, this is getting a little personal, but I was reflecting today on who I know who is a police officer. And um, I grew up with a friend whose mother was a police officer. And as a child, I always had a positive association with police officers because of that mom she was an amazing baker she made the best mini chocolate chip cookies oh my god she introduced me to bagel bites um and what i would say is she was also japanese and female um and so and then in high school um there was a race riot at my school between latinos and asians and so i um, I felt protected by police intervention in that scenario. So it wasn't until I started working with low-income communities where my association with police changed. I agree. I think I've been really cautious of when this whole the protest started about speaking out about police officers because I have friends who are police officers. I've been to their weddings. I've like held their children. And it, it, I try to, you know, think that they're doing their jobs. They're, you know, trying to do the best that they can at the time. And 
it's I do notice that I am more fearful of police officers though mm-hmm. since I've started working in the psyche D and Me I think too. it's because I've seen I've heard so many scenarios where when the police arrive things have just escalated to an insane amount that probably could have been de-escalated and I think one of the solutions to this is this is why like for mental health crisis teams are now deployed mm-hmm. um, with police uh, teams so that there's somebody there who is still an authority figure but who can de-escalate mm-hmm. um, and who isn't such a fearful bring out the weapons now so that you you follow my orders Mm-hmm. Yeah, Thank I was goodness. actually looking at information about interactions between the police and citizens with mental illness. And some of the data I found was uh, reported by the Treatment Advocacy Center, which is a nonprofit in Virginia. Um, and they reported that at least one in every four people killed by police has a serious mental illness. Um, and in 2017, police officers spent 21% of their time responding to or transporting people with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, that was from a survey of 355 U.S. law enforcement agencies. Uh, the Treatment Advocacy Center also reported that in 45% of those police departments, uh, the majority of officers hadn't received crisis intervention training specifically to work with those um, mental mentally ill citizens yeah i definitely and think to complement that yeah mm-hmm. complement that it's it's one thing what you're saying and i definitely because we have a, i'll probably seen this from what you were saying the um you know working in the psychiatry emergency room like how you, you can tell sometimes the lack of training or you know uh other measures that are non-violent to try to de-escalate you know with an intervention before things you know, get out of hands and you have to use the force. And also the other part in terms of mental health and how is that related to police brutality, it's the, the aftermath of, uh, of what happens to the families of those who are killed by police excess brutality, right? So the Boston University School of Health and the University of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania released a study saying that, of course, there's a high rate of unarmed killings of African-Americans by police course uh, cause more depression more stress and other mental health issues including also um, trauma or activation of previous traumas and what we were talking about like the fear of even calling police now because now you, you don't know if, if they're going to help you or or you know treat you with excess force so so you can see that the spectrum of, of mental health in different ways affecting our populations that's my point no, that's terrible. And then yeah. there's the mental health of cops, too. You know, I think we right. t- brushed on this a little Correct. bit, but that chronic exposure to violence, trauma, fear, that definitely affects them. Yeah, and actually, there's something called stereotype threat that leads to more violence. So with that, um, police officers will just assume that they are being viewed by the African-American community that they are in the neighborhood that they go into as someone that doesn't care about them, mm-hmm. that um, wants to do them harm, mm-hmm. that um, believes and they, they look at the police as a threat and mm-hmm. they have a lot of anger toward the police, you know, at the police and all this other stuff. So that then leads them to be very hyper alert and assume and 
exaggerate any movement as threatening. So they'll mm. assume yeah. an added sense of danger and threat to suspects, and that will lead to more violence. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. That's a good point. I think what we need to talk about when we talk about police brutality is always we also need to talk about um, getting police officers mental health treatment, appropriate prevention, interventions, you know. I, I don't think that there is enough integration, appropriate integration uh, amongst police departments and psychology, psychiatry, it, at least in the 1994 report that I talked about at the beginning of the episode, there they were talking about how there is not any sort of systematic cooperation. There's no sort of organization that really affords that appropriate intervention and prevention. So one of the things that also leads to violence is masculinity. Masculinity threat. If they feel like their masculinity is under threat, then they mm. will be more violent. So one, if so, those folks are going to be more violent. How do you, what are, what are your thoughts with you, Tosha, you and everyone and, and everyone else? What are your thoughts on how do we get folks that are highly masculine and in the police culture where weakness is probably frowned upon to get therapy, all right? How, what are your thoughts and ideas? Like how do we frame it? How do we offer it? How do we integrate? Integrate is a good word. You know, I've said this once before on this show that I don't think that there is enough media portrayal of PTSD where people can, um, it you know, automatically identify symptoms when they come up in the same way that people can automatically identify, oh, this is anxiety, this is depression, because there are so many portrayals in TV and movies about of anxiety and depression. I, that's just one thing that comes to mind. Right. And I think, yeah, people don't want to be labeled. And especially if it's risking their jobs, or risking their work, what they're doing. Uh, I just working with vets, so kind of the same masculine, like, you know, military mm -hmm. um, ideal idea. I think there's definitely a greater push to understand PTSD in vets, given the high rates of suicide. And the things that I've seen who, that have worked for, you know, vets who big men with like tattoos and like do they were a marine and they just like you know they talked to me about like killing someone with their bare hands and like how they broke all their fingers and i and it's a little scary wow. in that office with them at time but then they also start crying and then you're like oh my god <laughs> now it's like a little boy and i'm in like the mom position um but the thing that you know once you get past that phase the thing that brings them into my office and I feel that brings them back is usually they've had somebody in their life who said like this is bad like your your reactions are too intense you you know something had dramatic had to have dramatically happen like they choked their wife at night unintentionally um or a friend committed suicide mm. or just usually something brings them into my office that some intervention happened. And the thing that I think keeps them there is what's interesting is they find a brotherhood kind of. And mm -hmm. I think that military real, cop, yeah, yeah they, they have this brotherhood that really they draw upon that, you know, we're not out there alone. We're like, we have um, people backing us up and, you know, these are our brothers and, when you make it as these are your brothers still in arms, but who are suffering through PTSD with you, 
it becomes a little more palatable for them. It becomes something that they're willing to talk about more um, and they're willing to be more vulnerable. So maybe one, normalizing, two, more peer support. Like cops that have had th- successful therapy and it's been beneficial and then they speak to other cops about it. Mm-hmm. Something like that. You know, and, re- and really uh, some of the solution just to some of the, the r- situational and racial tensions that lead to violence is that there needs to be less us versus them. There needs to be more integration just into the community. Of right, community and- policing, community policing, right? Like um, engaging with the community in terms of um, town hall meetings or what do, what do they call it? Enjoyable like walking activity. the beat, walking the beat. Yeah. They don't, police don't do that anymore. They're driving around in their cars rather than interacting on a daily basis with, with the community that they um, – God, I don't know what the police lingo is. There needs to be more. I think there needs to be more like enjoyable activities too. I mean, you see it every once in a while on YouTube that they, you know, um, play with some kids on a playground or they, you know, they just goof around with the folks there. I think that that, I think there needs to be more uh, just just informal. Yeah, right, right. Seriously, seriously showing each other's humanity. I've actually, I've actually thought about this a lot because I think that I've been trying to draw on posts of like, you know, police officers bending a knee and like how that, you know, has sometimes de-escalated the violence and just because it shows empathy. It shows that we understand what you've been going through. But at the same time, I also question whether it's a good thing. Like they're picking they're also choosing a side and as a or showing a human humanness which they're in a role right now right they're uh, they're wearing a uniform should they be picking a side should they be showing human you know empathy right now i'm not sure that's that's Mm. i think we need to talk about that that's another that's that's a topic for another show dm and you have the last word that's all for this edition of let's get psyched everyone Today we talked about police violence and aggression and what causes it, personality factors, environmental factors. Thank you to our co-hosts, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi, Dr. DM Wynn, and Dr. Edgar Ortega. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. This episode was recorded in each of our respective homes and then mixed by our producer at KUCR, Elliot Fonce. So special thanks to him. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.